Hi everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Before we introduce today's podcast or guest, if you like this podcast please consider leaving a review. It costs nothing but it helps share news of the podcast and guests I feature with others interested within the paranormal. It's a simple and easy way to help the podcast continue to grow and be a space for people to chat and come together. If you haven't already found us on the Haunted History Chronicles website, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find links to all social media pages in any of the notes for an episode. Come and join us to get involved and gain access to additional blogs, news and updates. And now, let's get started introducing today's episode. Joining me today is Professor Kimberly Craft, who holds a Bachelor and Master's degree as well as a Juris Doctorate. Professor Craft has served on various faculties, including DePaul University and Florida A&M College of Law. An attorney and legal historian, she spent over a decade researching the life and trial of Countess Bathory and over a year translating original source material into English. The biography Infamous Lady, the true story of Countess Urshabet Batori and its companion books explore the life of the 16th century blood countess of Hungary, reputed to be both a vampire and the world's worst female serial killer. She allegedly bathed in the blood of her 650 victims. Based on newly found source material, translated into English for the first time, these books explore the actual life and trial of the countess through letters, documents and trial transcripts and allow you to learn the actual truth behind the legends. Professor Craft brings a corrected history, as well as new and exciting source material for the first time to an English-speaking audience. Get comfortable, because you're about to experience a fantastic opportunity to dive deeper into the law, the real history, the real person, the trial and aftermath, and much more, as Kim shares some of that research and takes us on an incredible journey into the past. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Hi, Michelle. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I can't wait to dive into the topic and the and the character that we're going to be looking at tonight in the podcast. But before we do that, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and so on? Sure. My name is Kim Kraft, and I... Normally, what I do my my day job, I I'm an I'm an attorney and I teach law related classes. I also enjoy history a great deal, and I like horror movies too. And it's sort of this, um, you know, this coming together of all of my interests that led to learning about and then researching uh, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, who is reputedly the world's worst female serial killer. Um, I, I found the story very fascinating. And so I also found the trial transcripts from 400 years ago, very fascinating and comparing them to the trial practice we have today. And it led me on um, a journey of discovery that I, I want to say has gone on for about 20 years now, 
not only learning more about her as a, as a, a real person, uh, but also doing a lot of work on the translation of the original source material that was originally in Hungarian, German, and Latin. So it's been a lot of fun to, in, in a way, rediscover her for a modern audience and tell a story that I, I don't think has been able to be told fully because we haven't had those those documents available to us. And now that we do, uh, it, it, I, I like to say sometimes the real story is far more interesting than the fiction we have. <laughs> so it's a pleasure to be here to, to talk about that. And I also think sometimes whether the, the desire has been there to, to kind of dig that a little bit deeper has been present because you know, like you like you mentioned, the myth that surrounds her is often something that has been so prevalent and preserved and become the popular opinion that people haven't really wanted to look beyond that um, mm -hmm. because, you know, they think that's it and that's enough. But like you mentioned, there is so much more to her story, to who she was, that is far more fascinating. And you know, I think what you've been doing is very unique and very and very rare and has offered something very insightful and very full and rounded in terms of who she was and kind of and doing that due diligence about her life. Well, thank you so much. I, I think it's sort of the the history detective in me that couldn't quite square these contradictions about her. On, on the one she she was a real person. And on the one hand, you hear these stories of her that just seem in some ways preposterous, that she's this blood-bathing vampire who's killed over 600 people. Um, she uses their, their blood as this magical beauty elixir. Um, you know, and it goes on and on and on with these hunt where she goes hunting for girls to force them to work in her service and the torturings and the killings and the mayhem. And yet on the other side, she's a real person. She's a wife. She's a mother. She runs estates. Her husband is a national war hero. She was attending the king's coronation parliament. Uh, the emperor was invited to her wedding, and and it's it, it starts to become a little crazy. Like, wait a minute, how how is this the same person? Um, how, if she's killing six hundred people, where does she even hide the bodies? And that led me down this path of of essentially the mission of my research was to find out what really happened. What is the true story of? Elizabeth Bathory is she this you know psychotic serial killing blood bathing vampire is she actually a very reputable wife mother woman who was running a huge estates was she were these stories uh, created in order to frame her um, that was something I looked into very seriously when her husband passed away he left her as an incredibly wealthy widow with just you know literally thousands of acres of land she owned castles towns, churches in what are five countries today. And it, it really started to beg the question, every, you know, everybody wanted her land. Her relatives wanted to take it from her. Uh, she was Protestant. The Catholic Habsburgs at the time wanted to take it. The emperor and the king owed her an incredible amount of money that she and her husband 
gave him to fund his wars against the Ottoman Turks. And there's also a little bit of legal history behind that, that if the king were to find her guilty of a crime, not only would he no longer have to repay his debt to her, which would be about Seventeen million in today's money, adjusting for inflation, he could also confiscate up to one third of her property. So then it really started to beg this question: Is this in fact a conspiracy against a very wealthy noble widow who maybe is completely innocent? I, I will say the truth is about halfway in between both of those. <laughs> and so translating that original source material, including her letters, her last will and uh, testament, trial transcripts, depositions, interrogatories, was very revealing. We find out that there was an inquest against her that went on for years. There were hundreds of people who were uh, deposed to ask witnesses, what have you seen? What have you heard? Uh, this was not brought against her willy-nilly. There was, there was a lot of work that went into putting together a case against her, and she had a very powerful family uh, fighting on her behalf as well. So um, I, I won't give away any spoilers until our discussion, but but I will say it, it's a complicated and fascinating case of who this person really is and what she really did. God, and it's just it's just the type of case that, you know, when you start to really understand those complexities, it, it, it just brings the hairs up on the back of your neck because it is so yes. fascinating. There's so much more to it. And yes, yeah, like like I said, I can't wait to kind of get into it in a bit more detail. It's it's the stuff that kind of makes me smile when it comes to thinking about and exploring history. Yes, I love that too, Michelle. It's it's so much fun. It's so rewarding. And when you find those nuggets of I guess I'd say truth or nuggets of something no one has ever seen before. The thrill is 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 really, really unbelievable. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you want to start by just giving us kind of a little bit about her background, her early life and that historical backdrop to kind of understand, you know, Elizabeth's start in life, if if that makes sense? Yes, of course. So um, even her name is is complicated, especially for English speakers. She is Hungarian, and in Hungarian, the last name, the, the surname, is goes first. So we would pronounce it Bathory. Um, it, it's actually Bator. They don't pronounce the Y. And Elizabeth in Hungarian is Erzsébet. So I'm I, Hungarian speakers, I, I do apologize. I'm going to do my best. But uh, a close rendering of her actual name would be Bator Erzsébet. And for the sake of our, our listeners and just myself, I, I will refer to her from here on out, though, as Elizabeth Bathory, and I hope no one no one gives objection to that. Um, she was born in the year 1560 to a very wealthy, old, noble family, uh, the kind of old nobility that her, her very, very large family, I think, would have probably quietly kept living in this sort of peaceful medieval slumber to the to the present day if it weren't for things you know like the industrial revolution interfering with their lifestyle they were very old school old nobility um but they too were 
I guess you'd say a product or a victim of history swirling around them. Um, as comfortable as they made themselves in their fortress-like castles on their vast tracts of land, they were still dealing with, at the time, a number of peasant uprisings. There were social changes in the air where the people who had worked their land previously for hundreds of years were changing as politically, economically, socially, the world was changing around them. We're moving out of the high Renaissance into the early modern period. We're starting to see the first glimmers of the industrial revolution that in a hundred years will be you know, very start to become very prominent. And we're seeing also in 1560, when she's born, a Europe that's been torn apart by the Reformation. Uh, and that plays out even in her family, where she's raised in the Calvinist faith by her mother, who's a very big devotee of Calvinism, uh, actually forms a Calvinist church, gives very generously to it. And yet when she's 10 years old, she's going to be betrothed to another noble family that are sort of at the forefront of learning and this new modernity and they're, they're Lutherans. Uh, she's also got uh, relatives, uncles of hers that are Catholic cardinals. So we see religion is kind of in this state of free form. Um, you know, just just within the same town, you might have three, four different types of churches, uh, similar to what we have today, where you have different religions coexisting. But at the time, this is still very new, uh, a lot of uncharted territory going on theologically. You also have uh, the the continent, the European continent is is constantly under siege by the Ottoman Empire. And, and I almost, oh my gosh, given the recent earthquake in Turkey and the devastation, I, I, I almost hate to say anything about this right now. I hope I give no offense when I talk about, you know, the Ottoman Turks attacking Europe all through this time period and the, you know, Europeans attacking back. Um, but I, it was going on historically and, and my prayers and thoughts are certainly with the good people of Turkey today and all the suffering they're going through right now. But so this is all happening. And in this world, she grows up, there's also the, the mix of, of paganism uh, the forest witch, the herbalist, they're still very popular. Hungary does not go through an inquisition the way you see happening in Spain, for example, or in Italy or other parts of Europe. Uh, Hungary's kind of laid back for the time period. And um, so they really permit the forest witches and the herbalists and other kinds of practices that might get someone, especially a woman, in trouble in, in another part of Europe they're not a, a malign too, too much. And so young Elizabeth grows up with this just as easily as she grows up knowing about Calvinism and Lutheranism and Catholicism from her relatives. Um, she's, she, by all accounts, she is incredibly well-educated. And this is, this is unusual, uh, you know, not only for women, but people in general. Even by uh, the, the 15 or the 1600s, we do indeed have Gutenberg's press. In fact, on one of her estates, Countess Bathory actually owned a Gutenberg printing press, which is really remarkable uh, for the time. But she, she was incredibly well-read. 
And this, this is a time to put it in perspective when her husband's parents, just one generation removed, would be writing to each other and her father-in-law would be consoling her mother-in-law. Now, you've been ill. Don't write too much because, you know, it's very physically taxing on you. You should let the servants do that. <laughs> and, you know, it, I guess in our perspective nowadays, thinking about what's so physically difficult about writing, but I suppose, you know, if you're kind of scratching out your, your writing, even on the best parchment with the finest squid ink of the time, um, it, it, there is still a bit of a physical physicality that goes into it, the process that we don't quite have today. And uh, letters amongst the nobility could be rather lengthy. It, it wasn't like anybody was a scribe toiling by candlelight in a scriptorium or something. But um, usually the nobility really often did kind of assign those tasks to their staff, their servants. Uh, usually the estate managers, uh, anyone on staff as part of the clergy would would be handling mostly castle records and accounts. And, and this dates back as well, hundreds and hundreds of years. So you even see, um, because books are still so expensive as well, a lot of the nobility will have modest libraries, but they you'll see from their letters, they'll request books from each other or travel to, to get a book if they need one. And most people uh, who are not specifically learned do not know how to read and write. So the fact that this young girl during this time can read and write perfectly by the time and and write fluently not only in her native Hungarian but also we have letters that she certainly writes uh, fluently in Latin and we see some notations that she's reading in in certain dialects as well of her staff who are also fluent in German or Czech or Slovak or you know languages of, of the the people who work for her she's aware of that as well so her learning is incredibly impressive. Which, you know, for a, a young woman of that time, it is pretty unusual. It's pretty unheard of. And and just that kind of, like yes. you mentioned, just to have that level of education anyway is is quite unusual for that time period. It's, it's fascinating yes. to kind of see how she sits within all of that, that, that kind of backdrop and to kind of have that kind of glimpse into what her upbringing would have been like as as someone mm -hmm. kind of being given these tools and being kind of molded into the person that she was and and the things that she had yes. at her disposal, not only in terms of wealth and title, but upbringing in terms of education, in terms of links and connections with other people and other noble families having that advantage. You know, there's there's an awful lot of privilege there. We can see that very clearly. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I will say she she used it. Uh, her husband was away a great deal, and the burden of running all of these estates typically fell to her. And when it comes down to its estate administration, which is very much like being a CEO of a very big corporation, um, she did remarkably well. I think how she also got such a wonderful education was she came to her husband's court as a very young person. Uh, her wedding contract was entered into when she was uh, 10 years old. And then when she was 11, she actually moved from her family's home, her parents' home to her future husband's 
estate. And th this was very common where, you know, the, the betrothed would move in with her husband's family. And from there, his, his family and staff would teach her the ways of running a household and preparing her for the duties of becoming a, a married noble woman. I think sometimes we think that noble ladies would just spend their time sitting around knitting or writing poetry or, or maybe playing the harpsichord or I, I don't know, something something leisurely like that. And and, and they did, but um, at least in her case and, and many other noble women that you don't hear about very much, when their husbands were away, they were in charge of running these vast estates. And as I mentioned, when you have estates that spread over five countries and your husband is rarely home because he's frequently on military campaigns, um, she rode circuit, meaning she would spend a certain period of time, you know, of so many months throughout the year going to each of her major estates and then establishing the court there, running correspondence, making sure the lands were tended to, dealing with the staff. And so it it was going, to, she attended parliament. She actually had a seat in parliament that she represented her household. She, she did a lot. She even down to kind of a micro level where her people uh, who lived on her estates would hold office. They would actually have elections for small local officials and her estate uh, running management would extend even down to that level to make sure that elections were held fairly. If there were civil disputes, they would bring arguments to her. She would uh, hold court. Um, and that meant she would act in the capacity of a judge for her people for all sorts of different matters. So she, she really used that education that she had in a very big way. And I also think where she got the education was because her, her husband's parents were, as I mentioned, they were very much excited about modernity, art, learning, the latest in theology and philosophy. They brought courtiers from around the world to their courts to bring everything that was new and exciting. And they also hired uh, the finest tutors in the area to educate her future husband, Ferenc. Um, Ferenc, unfortunately, who was about five years her senior, uh, when she was about 11, he was you know, about 15, 16 years old, was not a scholar. He was an athlete and he loved the idea of war. He played war. He played army. He spent summers in army camps. Uh, his father was a knight. So he that's what he loved. And his mother constantly would wring her hands about what will become of him when he grows up. So basically when he's about 15 years old, when his, you know, soon to be bride shows up at court to learn about how to run his household, he's off. He is already heading off to start out his life as a young man with a military career ahead of him, leaving behind a court of some of the, as I mentioned, some of the most esteemed scholars of the day who are all being paid with no one to teach. And so here's this very precocious young girl who's going to be taking over. And so it's pretty clear what we can say is that she sat down and said, well, I'm here, teach me. And they did. And they did a marvelous job with her. And in addition to learning everything that her 
you know, future husband probably should have been taught. She not only learned that, she was also then learning everything, as I mentioned, that go into running a noble house and being a noble woman. So in the morning, she might have dancing lessons to learn all of these courtly dances. She may be having lessons in etiquette or you know, sort of, you know, the, the etiquette of the day. And then in the afternoon, she'll be having a lesson in, you know, philosophy or theology or studying a foreign language. Um, so she, she had a very, very interesting childhood as well. And it, it can't have been a kind of an easy journey from one household to another at such an age and to, and to take all that on and to make that transition in the way that she did. I mean, it takes great fortitude, I think, great strength of character to yes. be able to stand up against something like that. You got to, yes. you have to wonder how much power and, and autonomy she had among, you know, amongst all of it. That is such a, a wonderful point you've made. I, what I envision, and from what we know, this is a young girl who is now by herself, as you point out, at this strange court, surrounded by all of these adults who maybe, you know, a, a little bit resentful, like we have to take orders from this child who is going to be our boss <laughs> very soon. They do have to answer to her. And yet they're also tasked with training her. And she is very different. She's been raised in this very strict Calvinist way. And one, we, we kind of can put a few things together that in her household, we do know that from her parents' home, she was taught their ways, these very old medieval ways that we are the lords and ladies of the manor. The people who work for us and serve us are our slaves. And, and I mean that in a very literal way. Uh, Hungary did not abolish slavery until the 1840s. And being not just serfs or peasants, but slaves of the nobility, there were a number of rules for these people uh, beneath her that things like they, they could not bear weapons, they could not travel without permission, uh, they had to work a, a requisite number of days, um, you know, very, very strict rules they had to live under and everything from you know punishments to meet the crime all the way to capital punishments for any kind of an infraction that the lord or the lady above them deemed offensive could happen and no one batted an eye and elizabeth bathory grows up in her earliest childhood years seeing this sort of medieval justice, there was nothing enlightened about it, meted, meted out to peasants who conducted revolts, um, all the way down to peasants who would pilfer something small. Uh, even the punishment she would mete out later in life to her own staff kind of suggests that she'd learn this. For example, if someone, you know, if a, if a servant stole a coin, uh, it would be very typical of her to mete out a punishment of taking that type of coin and then literally burning it into the hand of the person. Um, and then punishments could get worse from there. So we see her, she was most likely, we know she had a very imperious streak, even as a young person. She can be very polite and very courteous and cordial, but there's also the makings of someone who has grown up seeing herself 
almost godlike. And I can imagine that when she comes to her new court, she's got the air about her that, well, you're my servants and you're my staff and you're going to do what I tell you. And I can see all these adults looking at her thinking, <laughs> well, you know, kid, we, we, we're going to have to teach you some manners first. Um, I, I also think she might have gone through a great deal of abuse during this time. And I say that because her husband's parents were not around when she was being raised in his court and he was not around. This was due to illness and later death. And so she's surrounded by his staff or his other relatives and she's far from her own home. And when we look at what I'm going to call the pathology that will strike her in later years, where she tends to victimize and abuse young girls, in particular, roughly between the ages of 11 to 14. I'm not a forensic psychiatrist, but those who practice in that area have told me there was most likely a very deep trauma or series of traumas, series of deep abuse that happened to her during those same ages, which is why she would reenact them on other people and gender of that same age. So even though we don't have exact records, we can speculate that some of the particular sadism she would inflict on these young girls of that age may have resulted from her own victimization and abuse at the same time. You can you can see how she might have been the type of character needing to be brought in and reined in to you know to have her conform yes. in some ways. You know, almost this yes. old world type thinking being merged into something like you said, more modern, these two yes. you know, clashes of of religion mm -hmm. and thought. And here she is physically you know, mentally being molded into something that without exterior influence from family and from her own relatives and friends, you know, you can imagine that things went on. It would be perfectly natural, I think, of, of that time period and certainly does seem to, yeah. I think, you know, like you said, maybe signpost things as to why some of the things that she then did later on absolutely is, is there yes. very early on, I think. You're right. Yes, yes, because it's so fascinating when when we look at the crime she's accused of and the victim she's accused of torturing or killing, they're not men um, and they're not older women. They're, they're not married women or women of childbearing years. They're very specifically these adolescent girls. They're, they're not babies either. It's, it's just almost exclusively young girls between the ages of roughly 10, 11 to about 14 years old. That's her target. And when she turns 15, her husband returns. Now they're getting married. You know, she's now elevated to the position of the lady of the estate by the time she's 16. She is running these estates, which is kind of interesting to think. Um, I think in our, you know, postmodern culture, when you think of a 16-year-old, we're, we're thinking we have such a 
today, you know, we have such a sustained adolescence for young people. Our world is so complex. It's hard to imagine young people at the age of 15 or 16 nowadays, you know, in, in Western society, getting married and having children and starting careers. You know, some of them can barely, I'm, I'm making a little bit of a joke, but barely decide what they want to do when they grow up, when they're, you know, graduating from college nowadays. Um, but there she is. And she's very typical of the time that at about the time that you're able to begin to conceive and, you know, bear children, that's it. That's the time. Now you're capable of getting married, starting a family. And, you know, life is, is much shorter, too. When you're looking at a time period when people, by the time they're in their 30s or their 40s, they're considered to be old. I think that's a little shocking for us to think about as well. Um, her servants who are frequently referred to as the old women, or they, they will eventually become her hench women, carrying out a lot of the torturings and the killings. When when we think about in terms of, well, you know, an old woman, you know, what are they, you know, 70, 80, something like that. It's like, no, no. In those days, they were probably uh, perhaps, you know, maybe right before menopause, again, maybe late 30s or early 40s. Um, so everything requires a little bit of a shift in thinking from our, I guess I'd say our contemporary perspective. And then when we kind of make that those paradigm shifts, the whole world starts to make more sense in its, you know, even though its ways are very different from ours, it becomes more internally consistent. So in terms of her life as the the mother and a wife, what kind of mm -hmm. what kind of figure was she? What was she like as a mother and, a, and as a wife to this family that she mm -hmm. now has at, at such a young age? Yeah, you know what's interesting is it it she she initially had trouble uh, conceiving, and she, this seemed to cause her a great deal of stress. Whether it was a personal stress because she felt like she wasn't doing her wifely duty whether it was because she was getting pressure from her husband and his family. So she actually didn't have children until well into her 20s, which was kind of shockingly old for the time. We see her writing letters and, and meeting with people who are herbalists or um, midwives, you know, anybody to help her with this condition that she had. Um, we know she suffered from migraines and, and other types of health problems. You know, it, it may be there is some speculation that one of the ways she would abuse these young girls is a, a very particular type of torture, which had been explained as, I guess you'd say, an old world means of performing an abortion. And I hope I don't get too graphic for our listeners. Um, there's there's no way to make this as this very delicate, but I, I think it may have something to do with her own pathology, why she would do what she did, and some of the abuse that she might have suffered, and also an explanation why she had so much trouble initially bearing children. I, it, I there is a rumor that she was. Um, raped when she was a young girl before her wedding and you know some there there's a lot of legend behind this and some of the legends say she actually did have a daughter that was hastily spirited away uh, otherwise her whole marriage would have been in jeopardy if you know she were to say I'm, I'm not a virgin so the the idea of of rape would have been a palatable excuse around it 
However, there are other ways in those days uh, to, to perform abortions in those days. It was not uncommon. I, I think the you know modern women kind of think of the most barbaric way you can think of with coat hangers and things like that. In those days, uh, they would heat a piece of metal, like a metal rod or like a poker for a fireplace and insert that into the vaginal canal to administer an abortion. And the scar tissue and the scarring that would have happened would have absolutely resulted in her difficulty in conceiving after that. Since she would also inflict that type of punishment on her servant girls, which she would argue, oh, we, we were just performing an abortion. It wasn't a punishment. And there's a great deal of controversy about, well, was it really or was it not? We, we get, again, maybe a little hint or a glimmer into, again, sort of the brutality that she herself may very well have suffered as a very young person. When she gets finally into her 20s, we know that she did try every technique possible, uh, including magic spells. She tried everything. And she finally did conceive. And when she did, uh, it seemed that having children was easier because then in succession, every few years then, she, she did have a number of children. And by all accounts, she is an exceptional mother. We have letters of hers that remain where she's writing to her husband, who's perpetually away at war, uh, and telling him these sort of daily household things like, you know, the one child has a tooth problem and we had to, you know, basically call the barber who, in, you know, in those days also, you know, not only did they cut hair, but they also extracted teeth and they used leeches and all, all matter of the, you know, <laughs> the latest and greatest medical and dental procedures, you know, to come and pull the child's tooth. And, um, you know, we, we say her saying, I'm still suffering from headaches and, you know, I have eye pains and the daughter has these problems and, but otherwise we're fine. And later on we see her, uh, I, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but towards the end, she is doing everything she can to shore up the inheritance of her children. She's writing a will. She's bequeathing everything she has to them. She's making sure they have magnificent educations. Her son, Paul, she makes sure that he gets all the rights and titles of nobility uh, that he can possibly get, that he's set up to take over the estates. She looks for very distinguished, noble husbands for her daughters so that they'll marry well. So by all accounts, this is the paradox of this woman that with her own children, she's, you know, sort of the beacon of motherly love. We, we No one detected anything from amongst her friends, her family, uh, that she was a bad mother. In any way, she seemed to be extremely good with the children. Um, where she started to go terribly wrong was, again, not with her own children, but with the young, especially the young peasant girls that work for her, and then even later on, the young noble girls that would eventually come later to train and study under and her. And again, I think this is the complexity of her as a as a person, as a as a as a real live living person there are you know so many different aspects to who she was but also so many different perspectives that have been kind of created around her so much superstition and thought and legend and folklore around her that it's kind of hard to tease them apart 
How is it yes. that she has been presented in that legend and folklore? What a great question. I, I think the, the folklore surrounding her started right after she passed away. Because even even in the at the towards the end of her life, right before her arrest, as they were coming for her to arrest her, the people closest to her were still writing to each other and asking, is it is it true? Has she really tortured, beaten, killed all these people? Um, has she done these horrible things? Because they had never seen that side of her. This is a person that could serve tea to the prime minister or to the king. He, she could go to the highest society parties, balls, events, and be the picture of decorum. And yet on the carriage ride home, it seemed that putting up this facade of perfection was so much for her. Psychologically, it was so overwhelming that she would get in the carriage going home, surrounded in the coach by her servant girls. And all one of them had to do was utter the smallest complaint, the smallest whine, cry, and, and she she would just lose her, her temper in a psychotic rage where she would beat them senseless or kill them on the ride home. And in her mind, it was her thinking was clean up the mess, uh, you know, say they died of consumption or something, bury them quickly and find me a new girl. This one is unsatisfactory. Just the, the rages she would go into were that 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 was that was the part that was so shocking. And and very few people would get to see that. Only her inner circle of servants saw her rage come out. And the rage would come out at what you and I would think of would be sort of maybe simple things, not that big of a deal. But uh, for example, if one of her young servant girls ironed her gown improperly or didn't bring her the right kind of cup to serve tea in or, or just some minor infraction, sewed something with, you know, the stitches were clumsy or, you know, something that would you might be expecting from you know, a child, these, these are children in her service doing this work. Uh, it would enrage her. She would pick up, she would, she would um, unscrew a heavy wooden leg from a chair that it, in heft, it would be kind of the equivalent of uh, a cricket bat or a baseball bat. And she would go up to this girl and she would beat this girl into a bloody pulp. And then just carry on like nothing happened. So, you know, that's that's just what's so complex about her character that she can be driven into these psych psychotic, murderous rages and then yet immediately collect herself publicly to put on this facade that everything's fine. I'm fine. What? To fool people. So, as I say, even in her own lifetime, there was still doubt about, you know, did she, how did she do this? Even her own family, you know, who knew her would be saying things like, how could our mother do this? You know, how is that possible? And yet the legends that circulated after, when, when, Afterwards, when they went up to her castle to start cleaning it out and they started finding these dead bodies that had been 
brutally murdered and torn to pieces and tortured in ways that I, I think Hannibal Lecter would probably think, ooh, that's really creative. Why didn't I think of that? I, I mean, just heinous. I would be doing the translating and thinking, oh, it can't really say this, right? And then I'd, I'd double check it and think, oh, no, it's even worse than that. I think from the, the populace, the people who live there, maybe not so much the nobility, who, when they realized this, you know, I, I guess I'd say the gravity of what had been done, they banned her name from polite society, meaning striking her name for as, from as many records as they could, as many uh, pieces of correspondence that they could possibly destroy, they did, that her name was not allowed to be discussed, thinking this will make the problem go away historically. No one will know about her. It's so bad. But it didn't stop the local people from talking about it. And the local people who had seen, you know, a young servant girl who managed to escape from the castle and, and come, you know, limping into town, literally one of them had a knife in her foot, um, telling these tales or seeing them brutalized and then telling what happened to them. And from there, we start to see by uh, you know, 100, 150 years later, you, you start to, the vampire craze that was, I guess you'd say, spreading through Europe and uh, a craze in the sense of fiction where people love by the 17 and the 1800s, you, you know, you, you get kind of in the early romantic period, this, you've got Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, you, you've got this love of the Gothic, this love of vampires and horror stories. And, and that's really where you start to see the proliferation of tales that grow out of these very truthful events, but over time they start to morph. You have the Brothers Grimm, for example, in the 1700s, supposedly basing the Wicked Queen in Snow White on Countess Bathory, this beautiful but terribly vain woman that just cannot stand this beautiful adolescent virgin girl who is in her care. And the queen using her magic mirror and her magic spells and, and all this sort of thing goes to certain legends or rumors that grew up around Countess Bathory. Uh, and then by the time we get into the early uh, to the mid-1800s, a number of English writers are coming up with these stories about, you know, the Countess's servants are combing her hair, and at one point, you know, they they pull a little too hard, they hit a snag in her hair while combing it, uh, the Countess flies into one of her customary rages, she wears these big heavy rings on her fingers, and she basically turns around in a rage and backhands her servant girl who pulled her hair with this very sharp ring and cuts the girl's face. And from this, this, this story pour, you know, comes out, comes about how blood pours out of the girl's cut in the face and, and actually sprays onto the countess's face who then, you know, kind of dis with disgust is ugh, trying to wipe it all off her face. But as she does so, here comes one of the most famous legends about Countess Bathory. The blood of this young virgin servant girl acts as a magic beauty elixir. When the Countess turns to look at herself in the mirror, all of her wrinkles are miraculously gone, you know, and at which point now the Countess, who's starting to get up in years, says, 
wait, come here. <laughs> I need more of that blood till, till we get to these kind of ridiculous stories about pretty soon she's filling entire bathtubs with the blood of these young virgin girls because only the blood of a virgin girl will work as a magic beauty, youth elixir, uh, and you need a whole bathtub. And oh my goodness, I, I did the math at one point. It would require something like 30 or 40 bodies to fill a typical tub of the time. So then it, you know, it, it starts going into all these tales of the bloodletting and the torturing and the, the bleeding out of the victim so she can fill her tub to maintain her ever youthful presence. Um, the reality of this, you know, then, then it kind of by the 1930s, 20s and 30s, we've got another spate of these sort of neo-Gothic romantic novels. Now we're bringing in, uh, we're getting more details about her torture chambers and the Iron Maiden and her castle. And um, it, it, it now starts to become almost campy where, um, you know, a favorite movie of mine, 1971, is Countess Dracula starring Ingrid Pitt. It's so bad, it's good, which is, you know, based on Countess Bathory. At this point now, she's also a vampire, uh, <laughs> and, and it just becomes absurd. Uh, the real Countess Bathory uh, had murders going on in her estates, but she was meticulous about making sure that any kind of killings were happening in kitchen, kitchens or washrooms, places where blood could easily be cleaned up. She did not want to be caught. Um, and for her servants, it was an increasing burden to keep hiding bodies or arranging for burials of them with the local churches and pastors. This was someone who did not want to be caught. So there was no blood bathing, unfortunately. Spoiler alert. Um, she was not a vampire, although there is a story that in her rage when she was on her sickbed, this was definitely not a woman that was being preserved magically. She was frequently ill in her later years. She was constantly going to medicinal spas. She had trouble walking. Uh, it looked like uh, when she passed away, it was probably from congestive heart failure given her symptoms. Uh, she was in very, very poor health and was just looking more and more elderly. Uh, so, um, you know, the real Countess Bathory was uh, very, very different from the myths of the ever magically maintained most beautiful woman in Europe. We are about to celebrate hitting our 100th episode of Haunted History Chronicles on the last Friday of April 2023. To say thank you for the months of May, June and July, there are going to be daily paranormal podcasts available to enjoy on all tiers over on Patreon, as well as the usual additional items available over there. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1, you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, and more and know that you're contributing and helping the podcast to put out another 100 episodes. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website, along with other simple and great ways to support the podcast directly. It's all truly very much appreciated. And now, let's head back to the podcast. Um. 
I've often wondered if some of that myth and that legend is is kind of kind of coming from sparks of truth and and possibilities. I mean, you know, you mentioned her ill health and the fact that you know she suffered from things like migraines and yes. um, things from a very young age. And you know, we know very much at this time period you had corpse medicine, blood med blood medicine being used. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have to wonder if there's an element of that as part of her history that would have absolutely been part of any noble family person's history, but also the common person's history. And so yes. you, you have to wonder if there is an element of that that's become um, inflated <laughs> and grown. Yes. And yes. It's, it's that element and that kind of <clears throat> element of blood and need mm -hmm. for blood as medicine mm -hmm. is that okay. something that's transformed into this well she's this vampire you know right. vampire woman who right. bathes in blood and has to have blood and has uh -huh. to look beautiful and young you know you can kind of see how things merge and and that's sure. always been my take on it I, I think you're very right on that. Um, even uh, even uh, she she was putting in orders with the local uh, chemist, uh, pharmacy orders for uh, drugs like antimony, which can be extremely poisonous. And and you know the pharmacist kind of uh, you know lifting an eye like why you know when her servant went to basically fulfill the prescription, asking why does your lady want this? Does you know does anybody know that? you know, this, this could kill people if they took it wrongly. And there was sort of this question, is she poisoning people with it? You know, and, and the answer was, well, antimony was also used in cosmetics though. And, and, and as you were saying with, with the bloodletting or the, the blood marrow treatments that were pop, you know, used at the time, um, she was using all kinds of uh, herbs and medicinals and things that today we would be shocked by. But at, you know, the same time period, people were, uh, in, you know, using mercury as a healing treatment as well, which we also know is highly poisonous. So um, yes, medicine of the time, uh, what people thought they were doing, you know, may they they might have been doing it with you know very good intentions. We we do know that she smoked cannabis. We have a letter in which she's yelling at one of her servants about what happened to my stash of cannabis, and you need to go find it. Um, <laughs> and um, you know they used it then, as you know people knew do now for medicinal reasons uh, for healing of pain. And uh, she may very well have learned it. There was a lot of influence from Turkish culture and, and a lot of, of, you know, those kinds of healing remedies too would have been known to her. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, like, like you suggest that these sort of, you know, what would be ordinary blood treatments have been conflated over time to turn into vampire lore. I, I think one vampire legend came from the fact that when she was on her sickbed, uh, a servant approached her and in a rage, she, she bit the girl. She just was so mad. She grabbed the girl, shook her, and then just bit her. Um, it sounds kind of crazy, but that's the sort of psychotic rages she would fly into. And that very well, you know, could have led to, you know, these vampire stories too later on, especially if she bit the girl in the neck or the side of the face or something like that. What I think is so fascinating, though, about your research is that you really do kind of allow us as the reader to to understand that Elizabeth was was many different people. She had this public self. She had this private self. Yes. And they could be very different. Yes. Not only to 
her, the wider community, but even within her own relatives and, and circle, circle of friends and family, close family, you know, this real disconnect between what she publicly showed and put out to people and then what she had harboring inside that sometimes uh-huh. just be unleashed. <laughs> yes, exactly. I I often I, I I hope this doesn't sound terrible, but I, I I often think if it weren't for the killings, she might be historically known as something like, you know, someone great like Queen Elizabeth, you know, yes. because she I mean when you look at her as a woman in this time period, she was trying to raise armies to protect her people. She was negotiating with leaders of the time. She was um, she was meeting with papal emissaries. She was conducting business deals with not only neighboring nobility but with the prime minister to help her people to save her people. She was negotiating prisoner exchanges on the on behalf of women in her community whose husbands had been kidnapped. Um, she was worried about fixing the roof on her estates. She, you know, she was worried about having masons come in and, you know, fix the plaster on castle walls and, and, and again, worried about her children and making sure they were taken care of and setting up trusts for them. And, and like I say, for a woman to be doing that at the time is, is unheard of. Um, So she really could have gone down historically as, as just an amazing inspirational figure. And yet again, I think because of the mental illness that she suffered from, I, I, I really do believe that she herself was abused horrifically and it caused this horrific behavior on her own part that she would snap. And then not only a combination of believing she had a divine right to, you know, have life or death decisions over her people, um, I think also weirdly, in, in a sense of economics, with all the warfare plaguing her lands, there was, this is going to sound horrible, but I, I try to get into the mind of this woman where she really thinks she's doing the right thing. There's a surplus of women. There's a shortage of men. And in her mind, I think she's also thinking kind of like population control. I'm I'm doing my economy a favor. We don't need any more childbearing young girls populating like rabbits. We have, we can't even, our land that's been decimated by wars and pestilence and we have no men left hardly to farm it. Um, we don't need any more children. <laughs> I, you know, that that's the type of head that I think we we have to be brave enough to go into to explore what, if anything, can justify short of sheer madness, this woman who to the very end is insisting, I did nothing wrong, um, demanding, give me a trial and give me a trial by fire. Confessions in those days, uh, whether you're innocent or guilty, doesn't matter. Everybody went through it, literally a trial by fire. There was torture of burning people or cutting them or doing something. The, the thought being in those days that, well, if we torture you, you're going to be telling the truth because if you start lying, it's only going to get worse. And and she was adamant about put me to, to the fire trial. I, I don't care. I didn't do anything wrong. And yet there's all this evidence everywhere of people, your servants closest to you have said you have 
kill these girls. You have gone ballistic. You, you've done this. We've seen this. And, and she would argue, I didn't do it. My servants did it. Her cadre of old women, her henchmen, basically, they did this. And so then, you know, you, you can see just the, the mouths hanging open of everyone when she's saying this, just bald facedly. And then, so they finally ask her, well, if you knew they were doing this, why didn't you stop them? And her reply is even more shocking when she says, well, you know, even I was afraid of them. It's, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, this, this is the kind of personality to her dying day. She's claiming I've done nothing wrong. You, you, you know, I'm an innocent victim here. Um, and yet there's gotta be a part of her that, you know, <laughs> that knows what she did. Um, I, she didn't kill 600 people. We we get that number from actually one of the servant girls who testified at the trial who was basically showboating in front of the court. Uh, this young girl got up and, you know, she wanted to impress people and they asked her, all right, you know, Susanna, that was her name. What do you know of? And she, well, well, I heard she killed 600 people. And, you know, even everybody, even the whole court was like, what? You know, most women, Witnesses were saying 30 people, 50 people, maybe 100, but 600. And well, all right, honey, how do you know this? And Well, there's this diary she wrote where she wrote down everybody's names. This to this day, people still believe some diary exists. And, and Raymond T. McNally, when he was alive, wrote a biography of of. Uh, Countess Bathory, in which he talked about this diary and even made the claim that the Countess would laconically write in there, she was too small. You know, she'd put these little comments about each of her victims. And so to this day, people still keep searching for this supposed diary of all the victims and their names and descriptions. And when I've had discussions about this with the, you know, the folks who work at the archives in, in Budapest and Vienna, th they all start laughing about, no, no, don't start with the, the diary. There is no diary. And, and if there was, we do not have it in our archives. We promise we do not have it. So um, I can tell you that with the rest of the trial transcripts, this girl's testimony was not taken seriously. No diary was ever produced into evidence when these trials, there were two separate trials that went on for a very long time with over 300 witnesses. Um, and so I'm, I'm fairly confident that there is no diary and 600 people did not die. But did 30 die or 50? Yes, those were the numbers that her servants put and the servants very quickly not only blamed each other for doing it, we know they did much of the killing and the beating, but Countess Bathory herself would absolutely make her grand appearances where she, she would kill a few too. And, you know, th those are discussed in, in my book and, uh, well, about as graphic detail as I think any reader would maybe care to know about. <laughs> So how did she manage to get away with it for, for such a long time? And, you know, what was it that was the kind of the impetus that started the trial and that kind of process of her arrest, really? Yes, that is such a good question. Because of her noble status and because she, in especially in her husband's absence, could also hold courts and mete out punishments to the people who were her peasants, her serfs, literally her slaves. If peasant girls died while in her service, whether because of a criminal infraction and she would 
sometimes blame them for theft um, or just because things like cholera in a noble household even was very prevalent. That's normally what she would say would happen is that these girls would die of cholera and, and the disease outbreaks were, were common. And at first, nobody thought anything of it. She was fairly judicious with her number of killings that went on, especially while her husband was still alive. During his lifetime though, there started to be rumors um, that she and one of her servants named Anna were running a torture chamber. And Anna was a, a very sick woman psychologically as well. She was very close to the Countess. And I think she herself really enjoyed torturing people. And she taught the Countess how to do that. I, I would say ostensibly she taught the Countess how to do it simply as a way to run an effective household. You know, this sort of spare the rod, spoil the child mentality was prevalent during the time, but maybe not to the severity that Anna was taking it and showing the Countess how to do it. And I think the Countess, she was actually rather petite in stature. She would wear big gowns and very high shoes to sort of, you know, puff herself up to look bigger because it was, she herself was intimidated. She was, again, surrounded by people much older than her, surrounded by men as well. And she's largely responsible for running these estates as a rather small woman, especially when her husband's not there. And so she uses every means at her disposal to appear scary and intimidating. Um, and that goes with everything from her dress, her very severe makeup that she might put on that would be scary to her peasants. If there was, you know, some myths and legends floating around that she practiced the dark arts or that she would happily torture and maybe kill somebody to keep order, that that's a very powerful deterrent to misbehavior and to get that kind of respect that she sought so deeply. Um, as things started to progress, though, we see at first the local pastor starting to castigate her from the pulpit. And that was a, a very, very dicey moment. If you can imagine, here we are, you know, in the middle of the Sunday service, and the pastor gets up to give a sermon. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, saying things like, I can't, I can't stand it anymore. My conscience won't let me keep quiet. I have to talk about the atrocities of things I've been hearing, the beatings and the torturings going on in the lady's household. And, you know, the, the pastor's getting ready to excommunicate her servant, Anna. And this is all going on in public and to the point where the countess allegedly, you know, stands up in a huff and says, how dare you say this? And I'm, I'm writing to my husband right now. And she, you know, goes off in a huff to, you know, back, back to the manor. And with the pastor basically calling out after her, well, if your conscience is bothering you, don't blame me. Um, we get to the point, though, there are so many deaths that keep happening that the local clergy are, are starting to wonder. Like every time they turn around, there's a request for another funeral. And after a while, it gets difficult to keep saying the same age range, the same demographic of person keeps dying by cholera um, <laughs> to the point where the local pastors are all start getting together and saying, we, we're not going to bury them on sacred ground anymore. And at this point, when her husband passes away, I think this is really when her mental state goes 
downhill very, very quickly. Um, this is when she now is surrounding herself by a handful of servants who are all taking their lead from Anna, and some of them are as bad as her or worse than her. The Countess bribes them with money, with fancy clothing, uh, to stay in her good graces. They will do anything. And, and I think there are some incidences where they are doing torture and mayhem that even the Countess herself is surprised by. There is a story when the Countess comes in one time, she needs to take some girls with her when she's traveling to the spa, only to find out that the girls in her service have all been so badly starved that not a single one of them is capable of making the trip. And she throws a fit with her servants about, you took it too far and, you know, how could you do this? And now I have no one to come with me. And, you know, she she gets mad at them then. Um, it, it's just insane. And, and as it gets more and more progressed, I think as she becomes more and more ill, the mayhem gets worse and worse around her. I think she probably made a blanket statement to them to the effect of, take care of this. I don't want any more trouble with this. Um, just run the estate, take care of everything for me. And they perceive that as liberty to go and do whatever they wanted. And, and that's when we see this escalation, not only in torturing and killing, but a lot of sloppiness where people start seeing dead bodies being thrown over castle walls. We start seeing dogs digging up bodies that have been sloppily and hastily buried and trotting around, you know, the castle or the town with human bones in their mouths. It's, it's horrific. We, we find out about bodies being buried under floorboards, under beds, um, secretly at night. They try to sneak them into um, underground storage areas, tunnels, into the cemeteries, there's just almost nowhere to put these people. There aren't 500 or 600 of them, but even trying to dispose of 50 or 100 is is a huge undertaking. And then you you know you start to get the smell, you start to get these other problems, and at that point, that's when it's so. She, she can't contain it anymore. That's when the rumors are so bad. We start to see her own servants start turning on her, testifying against her. And that's when the inquests are starting where they're now privately um, asking people all over town, what do they know about her and how can they get enough evidence together to go and make the arrest? Her trial must have been scandalous, really shocking. And you can kind of imagine, can't you, the, the, the kind of the rallying possibly of some of her family to minimize some of that damage and the, yes. you know what it would do for them and their family's reputation absolutely um, i mean what was her trial like you mentioned you know trial by fire did she testify or was it she something was, that was kind of kept out of as much yes. as possible she begged to be uh, to be able to testify and even to undergo the the torture, the trial by fire to testify. Uh, her son in particular and her sons-in-laws were the ones that embarked on a frenzy of letter writing campaigns to the prime minister who had been put in charge of uh, the criminal proceedings. Uh, uh, Georgie Thurzo, he's, he's a very fascinating man himself. He was a family friend. The Countess 
and he got along very, very well. They, they referred to each other lovingly as cousin. Just a few months before the trial, Countess Bathory had attended uh, Thurzo's daughter's wedding. Um, so here's the same man that is a dear family friend who had been entrusted by the Countess's dying husband to take care of his you know, soon to be widow and family. This very same man is now put in charge of the trial proceedings. So of course her family is begging him, please don't bring disrespect and in, in this tragic, this horrific, you know, the, the, this, this, these horrible stories against our family. It's going to ruin us. We haven't done anything. Um, and so he's really in a bind because he's got the emperor He's got the king who both owe this, you know, both owe this woman a lot of money and want to see her convicted, probably want to take part of her land as the law would have allowed if she's convicted. They're constantly pressuring Thurzo to get a conviction. They they want her beheaded. Um, they're very clear about what they want, and yet he's being implored by her entire family, who also behind we're not sure if they bribe him they're they're one of her one son-in-law kind of makes a suggestion i'm in your debt anything we can do for you let us know i mean you know we we might read between the lines that there could be a little bit of bribery going on we're not aware too much other than we do know thurzo's wife uh during the countess's uh imprisonment actually went and uh, the, uh, Thurso's wife helped herself to all of the Countess's jewelry. We do know that <laughs> because the Countess was writing to Thurso and some of the other uh, legal officials that, how dare this woman pilfer my jewels? <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, that there was a little bit of pocket lining going on. But for the most part, before uh, the, the walls came down on her, the Countess knew she was under investigation. And she was very clever because she went and she transferred all of her ownership and her property into trusts that she had set up for her children and also disposed of it in her will. So I, I guess if there was a victory over her, it was a Pyrrhic victory. The, the emperor and the king did not get a third of her property. No one really did because it had already been uh, before any kind of conviction, it had already been given to her children in the will and the trust, and that would supersede any sort of other proceedings. So her children did get all of her property, especially her son. I, I think in an ultimate karmic irony, uh, when I think about how much work his mother did to preserve this huge estate for the benefit of her children and especially her son, the, the daughters died relatively early. So his son amassed, her son amassed almost everything. He was the worst spendthrift ever. He was a guy that loved to go hunting and spending money on, on furnishings and paintings. He had a very mischievous, um, uh, staff member who basically embezzled, much of the money from him. And I won't say that her son died a pauper. He didn't, but the, the wealth was squandered um, in, in, in basically a, a few decades. It was all gone the way this, this guy lived. So um, it's kind of ironic and kind of sad, but I guess, you know, <laughs> it's, how it, it's kind of it's shocking how it because, you know, she had to be so savvy to do that too, to kind of have that 
state of mind and ability to see what was coming, yes. know what was coming, plan for yes. it, do all of the things that she needed to do to kind of pull these threads together to ensure you know, this safe passage of everything that she yes. built up and worked so hard for. And then, like you say, to yes. see it squandered away would have been... <laughs> I know it is. It really is. It's really awful. But it's kind of you know, like I say, sort of this karmic justice. So would you say her her trial was a fair one then? Given all of this going on around her, this trial, we have all the transcripts, and and they're all in the book. There were two of them that went on. She never, she was never permitted to testify. She never appeared at it. She was basically locked away the entire time. Um, again, because of the letter writing and the scandal that would be associated, not only uh, having a, a woman of this noble stature being put on trial or tortured, uh, in, the, in the end, the, the judgment against her was life imprisonment. She uh, was consigned to life living within her castle. I, I think the trial, you know, when you read through it, I think the people of the time did the very best that they could. I, I approach it being a lawyer. I look at it, of course, through the lens of, of today and our system of justice today. Um, so you, you see there's in the early modern period, this is all happening, uh, you know, in around 1610, 1611, there's further legal repercussions into 1612. So we've got some early modern trial practice going on that is similar to what we have today, where we have, you know, witnesses being uh, interrogated. Uh, we see witnesses being deposed. We see testimonies. We, we see this sort of back and forth of a prosecution and a defense going on. So that that is in place as we would understand it. And yet we also have a question to the church. Would the church like to weigh in on any possible witchcraft proceedings? And the church you know, takes a pass. No, we're, we're not interested. We, we don't think we see witchcraft enough to basically bother with that. So witchcraft is left out, which is, is kind of interesting because a lot of people like to say about, you know, the dark arts that the Countess practiced and the magic she dealt with and so on. But I'm, I'm just going, I'm not saying she didn't. And we know for a fact that there was uh, a servant that she had that was very much a forest witch, very much into practicing uh, the pagan arts and, and what we would consider the dark arts as well, who was convicted, tried, and executed for doing that. But the Countess herself was not. So um, I think the kind of blame went to the servants for, for practicing the dark arts, not so much to her. Um, and I would say if the church would have had a chance to bring a witchcraft trial against her, they would have. Um, and they didn't. So for those who really, really insist on how much she herself was into, you know, these sorts of practices, uh, I'll just say that she and her husband gave a little bit too generously to the Lutheran church, to Lutheran scholars. She was a church going woman. I, I think it was hard to bring that case against her given the public persona that she had with not a whole lot of evidence to the contrary privately. So 
Um, but but yeah, I, th I think they did the best with what they could. Um, this notion of trial by fire or the notion that, you know, you have to be tortured to guarantee a true testimony is something foreign to us today. Um, but it, it was part of the practice. And I will say it sounds kind of brutal, but there were there wasn't a whole lot of people who shut up and wouldn't say a word. Um, I hate to say it, but a little bit of torture and everybody was immediately yeah. um, talking about admitting what they did and admitting what everybody else they knew was doing. And they were all talking, her servants all were talking about what each other did and mentioning her. So I think in a weird way, when they're all, they're all interrogated privately the way we would do today. And then of course on the stand, they also testify to the same. So I, I, I have the feeling since they're, they all say the same thing and agree on many points um, that, what they were saying was true. They they did a lot of the mischief, but she ha she got her hands dirty with more than a few. So you kind of mentioned well. that you know Elizabeth was sentenced to life in her in her castle post sentencing. What happened to her servants that were involved? Did they have the same punishment, or did they end up with something very different at the end of it? They her her main cadre of servants. Um, there was one who we we don't really know what became of her. She was probably the most, I guess I'd say, innocent of the servants. She did the least amount of harm, and everyone agreed on that. She was in prison, but we don't really know whatever became of her. There are no records. So I, I would say it would be likely that eventually she was just set free. We do know the worst of her servants, though. Uh, they were all executed in a, in a very horrific way. They were either... Um, well, the forest witch was burned at the stake. That was that was a done deal. There was no question about that one. Uh, the other women that participated, the other two had their, for the crimes that they committed, their fingers were literally torn out of their hands and then their bodies were thrown onto the fire. And then her youngest servant, who was, uh, we, we don't really know exactly how old he was, but he was said to be a lad or a young man who participated a lot. Um, he was actually beheaded because of his youth. Um, but yeah, it was very gruesome. And so the, these, you know, this was all conducted publicly as a message that justice was meted out. And it, it's probably very likely that where this went place, the, the Countess might have been able to see it from where she was imprisoned in her castle. I'm, I'm quite sure with the, you know, the sort of fanfare for the dramatic that they would have in those days, they would have made it possible for her to watch in some way if she wanted to. I don't know if they necessarily forced her to watch, but uh, there's no record that she was physically present. It does say she was still in prison at that time but um she she would have known about I suppose what that's happened. the difference that's, that's in the sure. in the class system you know um again just because of her status yeah. you know it's yeah. not an ending that you would have ever really seen yeah. happen to somebody of her position and nobility really and that's a big difference here i think that plays out and mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. see so mm -hmm. yes in terms of you Agreed. know this woman and and everything that happened to her how did she end her days? What happened to her post the trial in the prison? You know, what was life like for her in her final years? You know, it's it's so I there is one thing I, I don't put this in the book, but I have privately 
speculated about something. We know that the night she was arrested, she was giving a, a dinner party. It was Christmas time, and this would be not surprising. She was at her manor and giving a dinner party when literally the party was interrupted. And at that point, we know she was taken up to the castle. We know that she was imprisoned within it, and there she remained uh, until she died in 1614 in the summer, in August. And I've often thought about her life there because, um, you know, when you think about how women dressed in those days, and they would have these very elaborate gowns with these Oh my gosh, the the corsets and the stays and the things that all had to be tied from behind. These these this would require a team of servants to help her not only get into her clothing but get out of her clothing. And I've often thought about this how she was wearing this elaborate dress as part of this dinner party she was giving, then taken up and imprisoned and there's there's records that people visit her visited her in prison but there's no record of what she had available to her or what she was allowed to do necessarily and i've often wondered if part of her punishment she was left to have to live out the remainder of her years first of all in this dress that she could not physically get herself out of I've often wondered that um, if ever anybody was allowed in to help her get out of it and change, I don't know, uh, but I have thought about it. And we do know at first her daughters would come and bring her food, candles, writing implements. She embarked on a furious letter writing campaign in the early days of her imprisonment. She threatened that her cousin uh, who was uh, um, a, a duke in Transylvania, would lead an army and avenge her. This this never happened. Um, and eventually she was forgotten. The lands were transferred to her children. And over the years, she was forgotten. Um, the last letter we know of when she died is Georgie Thurzo's um, relative wrote to him and kind of on the side said, did you hear that she passed away? And recounted that she was in her prison cell the night before telling her guard that she felt very cold and that, you know, her legs were hurting her. And he said, oh, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. Just, um, I don't know, you know, put a pillow under your legs, basically. And he, the, the jailer recounted that she started singing hymns and that she sang very beautifully. And then sometime that night, probably around two in the morning is when it's believed that she passed away. It's kind away. of a sad ending to her story, really, isn't it? When you think about this really rather magnificent yes. life that she had and how everything about her was was grand and 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 magnificent and kind of over the top in some ways, even who she was as a person, to then have this very yes. quiet, silent, yes. secluded ending, you know, out of the, out of the public eye. It really is. Yes, yes. It's it's very ironic. And to this day, we have never found her uh, tomb either. I, I'd like to think that uh, there's the castle where her husband and his parents are buried. She may be buried there with him. I'm not sure if anyone has ever invested. That would be at the Lockenhouse Castle. But, you know, in, in the Bathory Crypt, we've never found her in the local cemeteries of her property. We know the, the, the priests there, the people there did not want her buried there. Um, 
so it's even a mystery where where her tomb is. Um, <laughs> so she has a lot of mysteries, even to this she day. She really does, still and, and I think it's discover. a mystery that hits so many notes: the history, her character, you know, the the myth and the legend and the law that surrounds her. But also, then, if you think about, you know, the analysis that has taken place in in the last however many decades, when you look at serial killers and how she fits into that, because she really is, yes. in many ways, different to what you expect from a typical serial killer you know she's she's kind of standalone really and, and that's she where again really you have is. this mystery and intrigue as to well what did motivate her what did drive her to do the things that she did which were cruel which were horrible you exactly know? how could she be that person yes. and yes. yet also the yes. loving kind caring person that she was it's a total dichotomy yes. exactly and and we do have the records where we see both sides of her. She's not all good and she's not all bad. When people try to argue, oh, she this, she's this innocent victim that was persecuted for being a woman. It's like, eh, no, not exactly. But then when people say, well, she's this monstrous blood bathing, you know, soulless demon. It's like, eh, not exactly that either. <laughs> She's not easy to quantify. She's, I think that's why I just leave it to the readers. Here's what we have. Here's what we know. And Ultimately, this is where I think, you, you know, decide. anybody who hasn't come across your books and, and your material really do need to, to have a look and have a read because they're fascinating and they offer so much insight oh, and research and information and just completely open your eyes to things that I just don't think are particularly well known and so you know for anybody listening we'll make sure that we get all of your details and so on and put them in the podcast description notes and on the website so people can easily come and read your books and find your Facebook page and your website and all of those things to, to help signpost mm. to some great material if they're interested. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah it's it's she's just such a fascinating character in history and um, we have so many people from around the world that have, you know, helped me with the research, the scholarship. Uh, I, I mention their names in the books, but but they go on and on. And we have a very, very thriving community on um, if anybody's interested on Facebook, uh, do come and join us. It's the community of Bathory scholars and enthusiasts. Come join us. We have members from around the world and everybody is very serious about the research, separating the myth and the legends from what really happened. And, and it's really a great group of people that just want to get down to the heart of the matter and find the truth, if, if we can, 400 years later. So do you have any uh, future plans <laughs> and projects just to kind of finish off, Kim? You know, um, people are always asking, when is the third edition of the book coming out? And I think I'm I'm probably at the point that I, I could put it together because since the second edition came out um, on the anniversary of the Countess's death in 2014, on the 400th anniversary of her death, the second edition of Infamous Lady was released. And uh, since that time, we've had even more scholarship and more things come to light that I think it would be time perhaps for a new expanded third edition. Uh, I just have to get a little less busy in life so I can actually sit down and write that. But if I were to say, what are my plans in the next two to five years, that would be a wonderful goal to, uh, you know, 
expand on what we already know and share some well if of you ever have the have the kind of the desire to sit down and do that i will be one of the first to, to be there reading it. <laughs> and you're welcome <laughs> i will i will send you a copy honestly <laughs> thank you so much michelle this this is just it's so great. Thank I you so much. I could talk to you for, for hours and for hours and hours and hours on this. I just think it's fascinating. And you are so knowledgeable and so and offer such insight that it really has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for, for listening to this. And I'll I say appreciate goodbye to you everybody as well. listening. <laughs> Bye, everybody. If you've made it to the very end of the podcast and value what content and guests I try and put out, please could you help take part in the following challenge to help celebrate our 100th podcast episode. I need your help. If you listen on Apple or have never listened to the podcast over there but are able to, please head on over, listen to an episode or several and please leave a review over the month of April to celebrate our 100 episodes. I'm hoping we can achieve 100 reviews on the Apple platform. If we do, then I'm looking to set up some live question and answer calls, along with some other events to help celebrate us achieving this target. Haunted History Chronicles podcasts needs you. Thank you.